In this God and Sexuality series, we seek to explore the intent of God's design in this wonderful gift of life and sexuality, knowing that the ways of God in all things lead to flourishing, life, joy, and healing. In a time of Tinder, hookup culture, porn, gender fluidity, same-sex attraction, HBO, and the politicization of sex and all the gender debates, there are numerous voices clamoring to be heard on these topics. But at a deeper and more personal level, we know that our sexuality has incredible power to form us, power to bring health and flourishing, or pain and destruction. We are not looking to pick a fight with anyone, but rather show that any difference we may have most probably doesn't start with our beliefs on sexuality, but rather our beliefs on God and His intent and design for this world and its people. We want to create a place for all people to bring their whole lives, including their sexuality, to Jesus and let Him do the restoring work He needs to do. Now we will listen to the next installment of the God and Sexuality series. Lovely to be with you guys. It really is a privilege um, to be in this congregation, reconnected with all of you. Uh, I, hopefully it gets said often, but I, I, I hope you know what a big church you guys are in the city. Um, just being with you just reminds me of the decades of love that you guys have put into our city and the way in which you are really an example to all of us in Common Ground and beyond Common Ground. So thank you for you know, these boxes here and many other ways in which you love our city. Uh, I am going to be talking about uh, God and sexuality, and in particular, this area of marriage. But before I do, I just wanted to quickly update you on our family. As Jeff said, we were part of you guys for a long time, and about four and a half years ago, we went across to Seapoint. Um, the way I can summarize my marriage is I'm the Rhonda Bosch boy that managed to marry a Herschel girl. Do you know, do you kind of know what that means? It's, it's, I am by far and away the reacher that, that, that got up there. And uh, we, we have the great privilege of raising our three children there. I'm going to give you a quick snapshot of the last 24 hours. Paddy over there plays rugby for Hamilton's Rugby Club. They beat Paul Boys on Friday. Can you believe it? I mean, this little Mighty Ducks team from little boys from Edgemead and from Campspan from all over managed to beat the Mighty Paul Boys. My girl, Joe's in the middle, uh, did a rhythmic gymnastics competition and did really well and has a bigger trophy than her brother, which upset him slightly. And then the last little kid, Sophia, came home and she was fixated on doing puzzles. And we're going, what's going on? And we eventually worked out she's going to be an extra in Tully Babes' new documentary. It's Tully Babes' wedding, Tully Babes' baby. Now it's going to be Tully Babes' toddler or something. She's going to be in the background doing a Puzzle. So she's like, I'm practicing for my show. <laughs> so just to give you an idea, that's what we're up to. That's what this weekend is involved. Please come visit us there on the prom. You'll notice the Formula E track is busy taking shape around the stadium. Have you guys seen that? They're widening the streets. Formula E is going to be with us in February. There's lots to be excited for. You don't need to go to Australia and New Zealand. Just stick around here. It's all happening. It's all happening in our city, guys. Um, you might have missed last week because it was a long weekend, but Ian Krieger did a masterful job of just really getting underneath the surface and saying, we all have sexual desire. And he did that in front of his parents, which takes incredible courage. <laughs> he spoke about masturbation, pornography, cohabitation, dating. I mean, we went there. And essentially, when you first discover that sexual desire, it's like, whoa, something's happened here. There's an initial response, which could be fear. You just fear it. You go, whoa, 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 this is something that could take over my life. And so I want to put boundaries in place. I want strict moral standards. I'm going to apply willpower and I hope I come out of holiness. The problem with that approach is that very often holiness isn't the result. Failure is the result. 
having tried maybe that approach, you go, you know what? I've been fearing this desire. I'm gonna follow it rather. I'm just gonna go for it. As long as someone else is consensual in it and no harm's getting done, I reckon I'm gonna work away with complete freedom if I follow my sexual design. Of course, this has been throughout history, but in particular in the 60s and the 70s. Unfortunately, having got the data back after about 30 or 40 years, the evidence is coming out. No, no, we're not getting freedom. We're actually getting disillusionment. Does Jesus offer something different to to speak to the sexual desire which all of us have inside of us? I think he does offer us something. And he he challenges us in this question. We're going to ask ourselves for weeks here. Who am I becoming as I navigate my sexual formation? You see, you're created. You're not a coincidence. God is the God of the orgasm. He created the desire you feel in. And finding out about what he has in store for you and following him is a great gift. And so today we're looking at the sexual formation in the way of Jesus and in particular around how marriage needs a vision. So that's the first kind of part. Marriage needs some practices which help to see that vision through. And these practices are gonna feel a little mechanical, a little clunky as we start to figure out what it means to be male and female. But over time, they start to become embedded as we throughout are inviting the Holy Spirit to change us and teach us about marriage. So that's our structure with vision, bunch of practices. The Holy Spirit point will be the least um, in terms of time, but that's when we'll get the band up and we'll respond with communion. Right up front, there are a lot of us in the room. And why this takes weeks to talk about it is we know it's not just a moment on a Sunday. It's shoulder to shoulder time over coffee afterwards. It's maybe a walk on the, on the prom around the common afterwards, just saying, hey, this is what I'm thinking about. People that are single, well, next week's a big week. That will be particularly addressed. There are people that are engaged. I want to quickly pop up a slide on the website to remind you that there is a pre-marriage course that Ronobosch runs. It's in person. It's happening towards the end of the year. And so as you prepare yourself for marriage, please take them up on that offer. And this is something that the whole city is invited to. Well, maybe you're married here today. And truthfully, you are like sustaining marriage, but it's getting a bit boring. You're like, well, we're kind of just in this in this rut, I suppose you could call that. Or perhaps you're saying, yeah, no, I'm in a marriage, but I'm, I'm here to save my marriage. I'm here trying to survive in my marriage. Perhaps you sit here today as someone who's been divorced and maybe years have gone by and the pain still lingers, the wound still remains. Or perhaps you can't identify with any of the descriptions I've given, but you would probably have had parents who in some way shaped your view of marriage and that still is alive to you. I think of uh, Pete Scazzaro's famous quote, you might have Jesus in your heart, but you've got grandpa in your bones. You know, <laughs> Our parents are still very much alive to us. And as you talk about things in your marriage, you suddenly realize, wow, I'm sounding just like my dad. I'm saying just like my mother. And you start to work out that it's maybe not just your spouse, but it's a whole bunch of your past that you need to explore and bring into the light. So... I'm available the, the whole Sunday. Happy to chat afterwards as we go along. I know there are many other people, your life group leaders, pastors. We know we can't cover it all, but we want to keep talking and opening our lives up to be shaped in this important area by Christ. So let's get stuck in. We need to look at the vision of marriage, the vision of marriage. And we need to see the connection between what Jesus taught and, and, and our sexual desire being expressed in marriage. Uh, Jesus affirmed that marriage is between a man and a woman and is the only safe place for for sex, for for sexual desire to be consummated. 
And so it's very important that we pause and think, okay, that's what Jesus said. What other ways could we understand marriage? What are the other ways in which South Africans are trying to make sense of marriage? And I've done a lot of um, research on this, so I wanted to quickly bring you in on it. Uh, South Africa is one of the first countries, uh, and I think still the only country in um, Africa, that allows uh, same-sex couples to marry. Uh, Polygamy is also legal in South Africa. Also at the moment, it is legal in South Africa for minors to get married. As long as they get the right permission, you can be under 18 and married in this country. There is currently, however, a white paper that's been developed, which will become, I mean, sorry, a green paper, which will become a white paper early next year, it's expected, where there are going to be some changes. The one change is that ladies are going to be able to marry multiple men. Uh, polyandry is going to be allowed because up until now it's only been polygamy allowed now polyandry is going to be allowed and you can see there that there's been a bit of an outcry about this um, as, as people have essentially said hey it's unconstitutional for men to be allowed to do it and women not to which is entirely consistent with our, our, um, our, con- our constitution we could spend some time talking about all of these things but I would say a lot of South Africans are just going through life saying hey man whatever makes you happy like what happens in your life is your business You enter into a contract if you want to or if you don't want to, but happiness is the goal. And really, we're all looking for just a good deal out of this. The stats, I thought I'd share these with you. Uh, The average South African male now is getting married for the first time at age 37. You can see that age has been sneaking up over time. And likewise, the average woman has gone from about 31 up to 33 now, first marriage um, taking place. And because these... Um, dates are getting later and later, people getting married older and older. Generally, it's accepted that to wait that amount of time before fulfilling your sexual desires by having sex with someone else is just too long. It's unrealistic. It would be oppressive not to. No one should tell you what to do with your sexuality. And so we are seeing some quite big shifts in our society. Now, quite an obvious thing to say is that children come from sex. I mean, that is, that is, that is how they are made. Okay, but we've largely disconnected it, as Ryan said in the first week. We haven't thought about this, but in South Africa, that's got big ramifications because our fatherlessness crisis in South Africa is absolutely enormous. The United Nations have done surveys across the world and essentially found that 75%, which I thought was quite high, 75% of all children in the world under the age of 15 stay with mom and dad in the house. 75% of children in the world stay with mom and dad in the house under the age of 15. In South Africa, the tragedy is enormous. Only 32% of South African children stay with mom and dad. Have a look at it all the way through. A full fifth of children don't have either parent with them, and only you know, the, the rest live with one parent. Now, anyone who knows anything about children and early childhood development will know this is a catastrophe. Whether you're a Christ follower here today or just visiting, we're so glad you're with us. I hope you share the pain of what you've just seen on the screen, the absence of a safe, nurturing environment. But, but perhaps what I've just shared there, you're like, ah, oh, I'm not into marrying multiple people. Uh, you know, I, I can't really identify that as a South African, so maybe get a little bit closer to home. Perhaps you find yourself thinking that marriage is all about pleasure. That's your vision for marriage. You're like, marriage is about pleasure. I can't wait to have that pleasure. It's going to be incredible. Or, man, babe, why aren't we having as many pleasurable times as we used to? And you kind of beat yourselves up if you're not having this pleasurable relationship. Maybe your marriage isn't about pleasure. Maybe your marriage is about just getting things done. You're like, I don't need a lover right now. I just need a partner. Sort out our insurance. Sort out our cell phone contract. Sort out our... And you're just like about life hacks and just plowing through and just making sure two becomes one. And actually, all of a sudden, we are supercharged in life. That's what I want my marriage to be. Just practically making life easier. Perhaps for you, marriage is like 
therapy. It's like, oh my gosh, there's all this chaos in the world, but I have a safe space. I've got a sanctuary. I've got someone close. And that's why when they turn around and say, why did you do that? You're like, how can you wound me? You are meant to be my harbour in the stormy seas. And you, and you fly off at each other because this therapeutic place has kind of been taken from you. Or perhaps you've just become so cynical and jaded from your own life experience or seeing others. People say words at a wedding and the reality is so different that you kind of put your hands in there going, man, I've lost all hope for this thing. I'm, I'm, I'm to each their own on this area because quite frankly, I'm over the gap between what people are saying and what they're actually doing. I've just flown through a couple of ways in which we can latch onto pleasure or therapy or, or hopelessness or in, in our own hearts at different times in one day because we've got different views on marriage. And I feel like we need to hear Jesus' view on marriage. We need to pause and actually think freshly, set of eyes. What was Jesus talking about when he spoke about marriage? And remember, Jesus is a teacher that often subverted existing structures. He was killed, not because he was a nice guy that was misunderstood. He was killed because he purposely pointed his finger at certain things that the religious leaders found offensive, that they found robbing them of their power. And Jesus came in love, but he didn't hold back when speaking truth. This is what Jesus says when asked about marriage. The Pharisees get him. Ryan looked at this in week one, Matthew 19. They're asking him a tricky question around divorce. And this is what Jesus answers with. He says, from verse four of Matthew 19, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus answers by telling a story. And he takes them and he says, have you, have you not read? He says, look to the Bible. Look to scripture. Look to my truth presented for all time, for all people. Start there. Notice there's a creator. In the beginning, there was one who made the male and female in the image. He's designed this. This is where you need to start. And this is where we've been, been looking at. That's the ultimate point of departure. Is there a God? Is there a creator? And if there is, what does he have in mind with the, with the sexual desires we all feel? I still um, teach at the Graduate School of Business every now and again. I, I do business classes. And it's an interesting space to be in because I'm introduced as a pastor. And it was like, okay, what's the pastor doing teaching accounting? And people think I'm like, um, you know, fleecing the congregants. They're like, ah, oh, we see your tactics. You clever finance guy. You went into the church. It's a good business in COVID. And it's a very fun conversation. But quite quickly, people will ask me this question. They'll say, hey, what do you think of gay marriage? And it's like, it's the showstopper question because everyone's like leans in. It's basically the question that says, are you cool? Or are you a bigot? We just want to find out quickly. And I have this response personally, and, and I, I suggest maybe you might want to adopt it as well. I say, hey, that's an incredibly important question. You're talking about your sexual desire. You're talking about how you express that. That is incredibly personal, and it's incredibly important. Even the, the room right now, do you notice how it went like, whoa, people know this is important. And I need time to answer that question. And if you've got time, let's do it. We need to set aside time. So please, can we, can we take the appropriate time for the level of weight this question has? I can't give you a quick answer. And then secondly, you know what I found with this question is it creates a lot of heat, but not necessarily light. Because people get very worked up, but they don't listen to each other. I find people judge each other quickly. They cancel each other quickly. And they don't really hear from one another. So if you've got time, I'd love to sit with you. And I'd love to generate light, not heat, and discuss with you. And would you promise to be open to hearing as I'm open to hearing from you? We won't judge each other. We'll listen to each other. And then when I get that opportunity, most people are cool. They'll say, yeah, let's do it. And then we'll sit and we'll chat and I'll say, you know what? The point of departure for me is really right at the top saying, is there a 
a creator of all this? Is there a designer? Is there an in the beginning? And if there is, what does that God tell us about being male and female, being made in his image? What is he talking about when he tells us to leave and to cleave and to be joined together? The two shall become one and let not man separate. And I describe how I was a Rondebosch boy who was shaped my sexual formation by a school that celebrated, you know, the Sports Illustrated swimwear edition every, every December whenever it came out. And quite frankly, I was shaped to become a pervert, not because of the school, but just being a whole bunch of guys doing life together. That's what happens. And when I came under Christ, I didn't go, I defend this right and then I'll accept you, I won't. I, I came under his authority and went, I'm, I'm made in your image and I wanna be shaped by you and I want the desire of my heart to be shaped by you. Absolutely every single person needs their sexual desire shaped by Christ. It's not a select group, it's all of us. And he either is Lord and Savior or he isn't, but we all need to be shaped by him. And that's the point of departure. And if you don't agree with that, you're fully entitled not to, and we can talk about Christ first, because that's really where I take my direction, and it's him that I'm following. Yeah. And it's been very cool to have these chats, because actually you do generate light, because you're not trying to convince someone who doesn't follow Jesus to follow his guidance. You, you have the chat at the appropriate point, which is in light of Christ and what he claims to be. It, by the way, isn't just Jesus teaching this. You go to the New Testament, you find Paul picking the similar thing up. Also going back to Genesis uh, from Ephesians 5, Paul says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. All the married people are like, yes, Amen. yes. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you see now that what, what has happened to our vision is it's expanded. Two are becoming one They've been united by God, but suddenly they're telling us about something more than just them. They're telling us about Christ and the church. The vision is starting to get expanded. Sex expressed in marriage, like opposite male and female together becoming one, is actually about that, which is Christ and his church. Heaven coming to this earth, reweaving of our lives. The very common you and I being brought into the kingdom of the divine king. You see, I'm not, I'm not here to police the world. I'm not here to speak to those outside of those who claim to follow Christ. I'm just showing you what Christ and Paul had to say, speaking about, about this, this institution of marriage. Uh, Tim Keller, he's always gonna get some quotes in a sermon of mine. Uh, he, he's got two books, which I highly recommend, The Meaning of Marriage. Whenever we're walking with couples towards marriage, that's the book we recommend. And then there's secondly, a, a daily devotional, which um, is called The Seal Upon the Heart, which makes its way through marriage. It's been a very interesting experience. I did that um, devotional for a year, keeping comments in the bottom, and I was chicken. I didn't actually ever take it to Leah, and I was just like making comments about our marriage and things can improve or whatever. And then uh, this year, she started reading it and doing the devotional. So it's been quite interesting as a married couple. Going, oh, I see, Paul, I notice I irritate you in the following ways. And I'm like, oh, like, <laughs> I didn't have the courage at the time to bring it up. But a year later, I'm like reading my handprint going, oh my gosh. Um, this was a loaded bomb waiting to go off, but, but really fantastic resources. Uh, this is what he has to say, and he's writing with his wife, Kathy, in The Meaning of Marriage. He says, there are all sorts of great institutions and human enterprises that the Bible doesn't address or regulate. And so we are free to invent them, operate them in line with the general principles from human life that the Bible gives us, schools, universities, etc. But marriage is different. As the Presbyterian Book of Common Worship says, God established marriage for the welfare and happiness of humankind. 
Marriages did not evolve in the late Bronze Age as a way to determine property rights. At the climax of the Genesis account of creation, which is the one, remember, Jesus refers to, we see God bringing a woman and a man together to unite them in marriage. The Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve and ends in the book of Revelation with the wedding of Christ and the church. This is about that. Marriage is God's idea. It's certainly also a human institution and it reflects the character of the particular human culture in which it's embedded. But the concept and roots of human marriage are in God's own action and therefore what the Bible says about God's design for marriage is crucial. So, asking the married couples today and even those who are seeking marriage into the future, what is your vision for marriage? What is your vision for marriage? Is it about partnership? Is it about therapeutic space? Is it about pleasure? Is it what happens inevitably when you hit your mid-30s and you kind of pick the person you're with? I remember that was one of my one buddy's advice. You see, a lack of clarity can hurt on this. Confusion can hurt in this. And I put it to you that your sexual desire is way too powerful to just leave this area of your life unexamined, even within marriage today. And I've often found that the best way to distinguish between what God had in mind and what all these false versions of marriage could be is to draw out the difference between a contract and a covenant. You see, I think a lot of us are most in danger of essentially hitting a contractual view of marriage with each other. I'll do this, you do that. I won't go there, you won't go there. And you can live for 40, 50 years as partners in a partnership and still miss out on the deep unity and oneness that covenant can create. Chief um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he passed away probably about a decade ago uh, now. But uh, where we're at in Marie Road, the shul is right nearby, so I'm often chatting to the, uh, the rabbi there and the Jewish leaders, and so they also look at Genesis and look at marriage, and, and, and he drew out, I think, quite a beautiful distinction between covenant and contract. I want to read it to you as to help I understand. He says, economics and politics are arenas of mediated, principled competition for money or power, where individuals struggle to survive and beat others. But social goods like knowledge, trust, learning, friendship, and love, inherently work differently. The more I share, the more I have. Social goods don't operate by the logic of scarcity and zero-sum games. So where those goods are involved, we should promote cooperation rather than competition. That cooperation can take two forms, a contract or a covenant. In a contract, two parties, each focused on personal interest, come together for a specific purpose from which both benefit for a limited time. In a covenant, two people come together with a moral commitment to stay together in good and bad times for the greater good, and by doing so, are transformed. Contracts are about interest. Covenants are about identity. Contracts benefit. Covenants transform. Do you see the difference? Do you see this vision? Now, Leanne and I um, have been dating for about uh, 16 years, married for 14. Very early on, she, she gave me a vision for marriage. It was in the old school days of DVD players, and she put it on, the notebook, the notebook. And I've noticed a lot of kids running around playgrounds called Noah, and I know why. It's because of this book. It had nothing to do with the flood, right? Noah meets Ali, and he pulls moves. There's, he's on a lake. You can see it. There's Ferris wheels. That's hot, hot romance. It's going for it. But then cue to the bench where they're sitting later in life. He is 
reading from her notebook and reminding her of all that had happened because she's got dementia. And it takes the whole day, but right at the, at the end of the day, she starts flickering and she starts remembering. And they play their song and they dance together. And then, of course, she goes to bed and the next morning has forgotten everything. And so he reads the notebook again and reminds her of their love. What a vision. Sparks and romance right into old age, still together. The problem is it misses 50 years, 50 years from the high romance to the dementia reading the book. We don't have a clue how to close that gap. We really don't. And you might think, Paul, that was just Leanne in the notebook. I, I have another example, top wedding song at the moment, uh, Thinking Out Loud Globally by the poet Edward Christopher Sheeran. And this is, what, <laughs> this is what he has to say. He says, when your legs don't work like they used to before, and I can't sweep you off of your feet, will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? And darling, I'll be loving you till we're 70. And baby, my heart could still fall as hard at 23. And I'm thinking about how people fall in love in mysterious ways. Maybe just the touch of a hand. Oh me, I fall in love with you every single day. How do you do it, Ed? How do you do it for 47 years? How do you keep that spark going? That's why we need to talk about practices. We need to talk about practices because that's the vision, but let's talk practices. Vision gives us the what and the why, but now it's time to get into the how. And as I said, we're gonna need the Holy Spirit. And so that'll be our, our final response moment. Now, we looked at Ephesians 5 earlier and Paul's gonna continue and he's gonna give us very practical things on how do we, in marriage, give expression to our, our sexual identity, our sexual desire, okay? He says this from Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That's gonna be our major response at the end of our time. Be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is about that. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, to our ears today, words like submission and how that all works out and husbands and wives needs us to go to, to uh, the first century and walk it back to, to Rondebosch today to properly understand it. The city of Ephesus where we're writing has Artemis as the goddess. Picture Cape Town Stadium, but even bigger. That was the statue that overlooked this whole uh, city. And in, in that city, it was all about working hard and playing hard. And you would 
get, get your kind of spiritual adoration by going to Artemis and, and, and giving a sacrifice and sleeping with temple prostitutes. It was, it was a wild place. Don't think this was like some outdated version of life. This was work hard, play hard, which I think sounds familiar to any urbanite today. The view of women at that time was that they were almost, almost people uh, by cultural standards. And certainly as far as the Romans were concerned and the Greeks, they, they, were, they were really mis, um, misvalued. Uh, often uh, young girls would be left out to die of exposure because it was a baby boy that was wanted. Uh, typically men would marriage to kind of keep the, the line going as far as babies is concerned, but they were allowed to sleep with whoever they wanted outside of that arrangement. And Aristotle had household codes, which are quite important to understand. And his household codes were quite simple. Wives, you need to do what the husband says. Children, you need to obey your dad. And employees, you need to listen to your master. That was kind of the code that was laid down. And into that structure came a subversive element, came something that said, no, no, we, we know their relationships here, but they should be different. And it was radical. It was a call for everyone to submit themselves to Christ and then to work that out in their marriages and with their children. And it started to look a lot like husbands laying down their lives to serve their wives, and it started to look like a lot like wives laying down their lives to help their husbands. Let's remind ourselves of this text. Verse 21 speaks quite clearly that there needs to be something spirit-filled about it. There needs to be a change in your heart that says, okay, God, I've done it my own way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come under your leadership now. I'm gonna follow you, and I need your spirit to empower me. Both do this husband and wives in marriage. And this book of Ephesians is following a massive theme. And the major theme is really how heaven has invaded earth. Heaven is uniting itself with earth. Across all kinds of ways, the kingdom is coming. And in marriage, as people do it God's way, the kingdom comes. As you're spirit-filled, this new operating system of loving each other starts to change your marriage. And the goal of marriage doesn't become contract, I get benefits and exchange for the costs, it becomes covenant where I love radically in a way that hurts me, in a way that has a shocking word, self-denial, in a way that's sacrificial. And that's the goal as I covenant with this other person in sickness and in health. The words I say and the life I lead are mutually entwined as heaven comes to earth. Left to ourselves, it wouldn't be possible, but as we spirit-filled, it happens. Husbands, what are some of the practices that are you encouraged? To fulfill, well, you're encouraged to lay down your life just like Christ did for the church. You're encouraged to be a servant leader. And it's not just this isolated incident. In Corinth, Paul writes in again to a church that's really gone wild. There's lots of crazy stuff. He says some quite subversive, shocky things. 1 Corinthians 7, he says this, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does. Some of the husbands are like, that's my verse, it's tattooed on my arm. But they should keep reading, because how's this for shocking? Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In Aristotle's household codes, that bit would have been a slap in the face. What are you talking about? Husbands not having authority of their own body because there's a deep unity that marriage brings about, that is expressed in sex between a husband and a wife. Wives, what's the call? It's to lay down your life, just like Christ did for the church, as a strong helper in marriage. Now, of course, this 
uh, has been abused. And I'm not here to defend the abuse that has been experienced by many women who have, have had husbands take advantage. If that is you today, if you're a victim of any kind of abuse, physical or mental, speak to us. There's forgiveness that needs to be extended, but there's also legal action that might be appropriate. And we don't want to be a community that defends darkness. In our country in particular, our tragic history of exploitation on the mines, fatherlessness, I think women have done a heroic job of keeping many marriages going and many families going. I think the problem is clear, as identified at the beginning, but I think the solution is men stepping up to what Christ has called them to in relationship with him, a recovery of biblical manhood, properly understood, serving of one another, laying down your life as Christ did for the church. And it just bears repeating that we're not talking about women submitting to men. We're talking exclusively about marriage, and we're talking about in a married relationship, husband and wife. You see, there's lots more that I could say here, but verse 33, I think, is, is where I have to land this particular passage where it says, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It gives such a practical handle on it. Men, are you owning the call of God in your marriage to love your wife? Have you listened to her? Have you observed her? Have you valued her? Valued her? Have you encouraged her? Have you responded to her? You are the only legitimate source of romance in your wife's life. If someone else is buying her flowers and you're not, that's a problem. Be famous at home is my phrase to the husbands. Be famous at home. Don't have everyone else applauding you but your own wife going, what? Have your wife go, you're amazing. Everyone else is like, who's that guy? I never see him. He's always at home. <laughs> Woman, women or wives, I should say, are you owning the call to God, of God? To, to respect your husband, to respect your husband. Are you his biggest fan? Even if you're always quicker and faster and much more efficient, are you his biggest fan? Quite frankly, disrespect doesn't work. Nagging doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And eventually you'll we'll see that. Can I also encourage you, you know, in Seapoint, I'm sure it's the same here. There are talented people here, talented people. Can you bring all of that talent, all of that energy, all of that strategic genius to your marriage? Bring it to the fore. I think there's a little lie Satan puts in here, which says, it shouldn't be hard work. It should come naturally. It should just flow. It's a lie. Why would a professional athlete never practice? Why would a, magician, a, a, a musician just kind of go, I can pick it up? How could a magician <laughs> just, pull a, just pull a rabbit out of a hat? Right? There's, there's no ways those people could do any of those things without practice. But yet when it comes to marriage, the most important relationship of our lives, we're like, no, man, if you, if you put effort in, it's like not genuine. It's like, it's not authentic, man. It's not authentic. It's like, what a lie. What a lie. Leanne and I, we go away often and we do an exercise called reverse engineer your life. We picture a day in the future. For us, it's when our boy hits high school. It's going to be quite an important day. And we go, okay, what? It's going to be the end of 2026. What is life going to be like? How old are our parents going to be? Which extended family members are still going to be alive? What are we going to be doing for exercise? Where are we going to be living? What our house looks like? What does our car look like? Who are our friends? Um, how much do we weigh? We ask all these kind of questions. We say, if that's the vision that God's given us, how do we get there as a couple? We have those intense conversations. We have a long list of conversations that are generated from that one conversation because we're aiming for deep unity, not just partnership. In our communication with each other, we've got a little device before we trigger off an argument. Because you know the argument isn't actually the argument. The argument is the way you have the argument. You know what I mean? You forget what actually caused it, but you can go off for a long time and you're angry about being angry. 
And the little question which Leanne's great at asking, she asks this, are you being serious? It's just a simple device we've used. You, you can borrow it, it's for free. And what she means by that is, you've really upset me. I could go off right now, but I'm not gonna. I'm just asking, are you being serious? And then I can decide if I wanna die or not. <laughs> and I'm, but I mean, I'm being serious. I could, I could be said, no, but this is also serious for me. Let's have the chat. But let's not explode and then, and then pick up the pieces afterwards. This is, should be helpful for many of you. When having a conversation, ask your wife, do you want comfort or solutions? Do you want listening or problem solving? Very often we're confused in this area. And I'm, all the caveats, all the terms and conditions apply, but most of the time men are listening to solve. They're not listening to provide comfort, to make the appropriate noises of empathy. I've learned this from my mates. Um, feelings or frustrations. Rather describe feelings rather than frustrations. One of our things, quite frankly, is when the kids are in bed, it's, that it's the most natural high you'll get when you're nine, seven, and five-year-old in uh, sleep. It's like glory be to God. And you turn around and your spouse is on their phone. And in that moment, you can go, come on, babe, like we've been around the whole day. And you just blurt out frustrations. Or do you have the courage to say, babes, you know what? I'm feeling neglected because we finally got time to ourselves and you choosing to be on your phone rather than being with me. Do you see the difference there? The one is this like verbal vomit of like, why are you on your phone? We agreed, no tech after seven. Or this kind of feeling thing of, hey, I'm feeling quite neglected here because turning around, we got this time together, but there's a difference there. And then finally, let's celebrate in our marriages. Uh, we have this little thing we learned from the Termies, rub our hands together as we are, can you feel it? Do you know those moments? When you're all on the prom and everyone finally is on their bicycle and all the tires are pumped up and it's this glorious moment where no one's crashed anyone and you just, you just rub your fingers and go, guys, what is this? This is a bit of heaven on earth. This is a bit of the kingdom coming. This is two people becoming one. This is it, celebrate. In particular for sex, I want to encourage the following. It's four by four matrix, four questions. What are you going to cease? What are you going to celebrate? What are you going to clarify? What are you going to create? Have a look at this. What's wrong with your marriage? What's wrong with your sex life? People that are married. What do you want to stop doing? Cease it. What is good? What do you want to celebrate? What do you want to do more of? Take an hour today, guys. Don't let the night go out. Don't put your head on the pillow until you have this conversation. What is confused for you? What do you need clarity on? And finally, maybe what is missing? You can create something. Use all these tools, all these devices that we've picked up in life and have a good one-hour conversation. There are marriages in this room, I believe, are one good conversation away from a whole nother level of joy, from a whole nother level of intimacy and appreciation for one another. Have the courage to have this conversation. Speak to each other. And Louise has already pointed to the, to the resource available, uh, Greg and Dr. Greg and Erin Smalley, who, who addressed this issue of resisting the drift. How's this for a compelling narrative? They say, how married couples can slowly fade into roommate behavior with the routine of jobs, kids, chores, and other commitments, which can overshadow the romance and passion in marriage. Listen to that as it goes out on the mailer. Sometimes Leanne and I will look at each other with all the practices and all the visioning. We'll look at each other and we'll say something like this. I know you love God. Tick. And I know you love me. Tick. So why are you sabotaging this? Like, like it makes no sense. And as I said, it's because we've got Jesus in our heart, but we've got grandpa in our bones. There are things unexamined inside of us. Most marriages in South Africa that are going to end in divorce they will end in divorce between the ages of five and nine years. That's kind of the, pay, the place. So the seven-year itch is real. And my kind of working theory on the seven-year itch is that it's at that point that you look at each other and you go, we are actually fundamentally different. We just actually are. 
And am I gonna embrace that difference and bring it before God in our marriage and submit ourselves? Or am I gonna blame the other person and try and say, they never changed, they didn't do it enough. And then, and then essentially find myself in another relationship where the exact same thing will happen after another seven years. You see, marriage, like nothing else, reveals our self-centeredness. It reveals our sinful nature. The person you're married to didn't cause that. They're just revealing that. Puritans, there's a quote called marriage, the little church within the church, a place to test and also develop spiritual character. I persevere in the difficult times in my marriage for the same reason I persevere in the difficult times in my faith because I believe that both touch something of eternal significance. Our very own Rigby Wallace always used to say this, I've never seen marriage fail, at which point you're like, Rigby, the stats are clear. Marriage has failed many, many times. And then having let you embarrass yourself, he says, I have seen people fail marriage, but I haven't seen the institution of marriage fail. Done it God's way, it leads to this deep oneness and unity. I love Philip Yancey writing, he says, marriage strips away the illusions about sex pounded into us daily by the media. Few of us live with oversex supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, especially in the morning, body odors and unruly hair, who menstruate and experience occasional impotence, who have had bad moods and embarrass us in public, who pay more attention to their children's needs than their own. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding and endless supply of forgiveness and so do our partners. Such is the ironical power of sex. It lures us into relationship that offers to teach us that we need far more, what we need far more, which is sacrificial love. So we have a vision, and we've got these practices, but we're gonna need, we're gonna need the Holy Spirit to get rid of our self-centeredness, to truly ever find the sacrificial love being spoken of here. Going back to Ephesians, it was just that simple. It was just a little line, be filled with the Spirit. It's the starting point. As we come into God's presence, we acknowledge our need for Him and the great exchange takes place. Our our sin, our self-centeredness for His Spirit. Let the light of the gospel shine in your life, the goodness of God. Invite the work of the Spirit. Jonathan Grott, who's written another book I highly recommend called Divine Sex, He describes in that book the three stages of a wedding feast. And we're going to have communion now, and that's that's why I'm describing it to you. Initially, the first stage would be the husband would pay a price for the bride. He would have to pay a price, and then a year would pass, generally, before the marriage would take place. What was happening at that time was the second stage. The bridegroom was going to prepare a room for his wife. He would go to his parents' house and he would start building that room. That's why Jesus spoke about how he's going to prepare a room for us. And there's going to be lots of rooms. We're all going to be roommates, guys. How exciting is that? And then the third stage, having built that room, is the bridegroom comes for his bride. He comes. And Jesus spoke about this as well. He told the parable about 10 maidens who were waiting. you excited. Is he coming tonight? Is he coming tonight? You never quite knew. And when he came... Five of them hadn't prepared and they were like, oh, we don't have oil and they ran off. And then when he came, they weren't there. They weren't there. They missed this banquet, this incredible moment of heaven and earth united. Christ is the bridegroom coming to be with his bride. There's a warning there for us. There's a warning to submit ourselves to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit to prepare us for that feast. Can I ask that you stand with me? Can I ask that you stand with me? 
Christ has paid the pride, the, the price for, for each and every one of us. We're his bride. He's paid the price. That is the good news. That's the scandalous good news. No matter what your past has been, as the band comes up, he's paid the price. He's prepared a room for you. And he one day will come and bring you home and usher you into the wedding feast of the Lamb. It begins in the garden with Adam and Eve getting married and ends one day with the whole of the bride of Christ being united to him. Revelation 19 says this, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We have an opportunity to respond as a community by righteous deeds of stewarding our one and only lives for his glory.